0: How many of you guys voted yesterday? All right. All right. You voted early? All right. How many of you guys voted? Let's say that. All right. How many of you guys voted more than once? All right. All right. All right. That's the other side. Yeah. You said that, Phil. I didn't say that. Well, let's pray as we start tonight. Father, we thank you that we do not live under a dictator. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we live in a very unique um, arrangement. Uh, historically, it's very unique. And it's even unique as we look at the surrounding nations of the world. We, uh, we thank you for uh, freedom. We thank you for uh, the uh, ability to express ourselves. That is being hemmed in around us more and more. But it's it's still there and uh, Lord we thank you for the opportunity to make our voices known we um, we pray for our president tonight because we are told to pray for those in authority we pray that you will give him wisdom we pray, pray Lord that with this uh, favorable turn of events uh, in terms of uh, being able to get some things through that uh, that Lord, foremost in his mind, would be pleasing you, that he would consult with you, that, uh, that he would have your glory in mind, that he would have truth and justice, uh, that those principles which are biblical, which are godly in nature and in origin, uh, would govern his thinking and decision-making. Uh, we thank you for favor upon uh, our nation. Uh, Lord, we have slid away dramatically from your word and from your truth. But we thank you that uh, you always have your people. Uh, Elijah thought that he was alone, but he wasn't. You had 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. We, uh, we pray that we would be men, that uh, you would count as, as your uh, squad of warriors, men who could be counted upon, uh, men who could be put in the battle. We, more than anything, want your favor in our lives. Uh, we're here tonight to look at your word, to look at your truth. Help us not only to hear the word, but help us to be doers of the word. That's our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last night was an interesting night, wasn't it? <clears throat> I, um, we had some friends call us. And they wanted to watch the returns on the Fox network. And they don't get the Fox network, but we do. So they came over and joined us. Um, I, I, I thought of that this afternoon as, as I was looking at a book. Because the Fox network, you know, it didn't exist not too many years ago. But the guy who was the architect of the Fox network was a guy, named, uh, a guy by the name of Roger Ailes, A I L E S. He's been around a long time. He's been a consultant for a long time. Um, was in advertising, uh, ran some campaigns. Was involved with a, a number of leaders. Uh, interestingly enough, was the guy that brought Rush Limbaugh to Sacramento in the New York. Uh, a very, very uh, unique uh, guy. Very diverse guy. Uh, he wrote a book a number of years ago on on public speaking. And uh, interestingly, it's one of the best books I've ever read on public speaking. I don't read a lot of books on public speaking, because most of them are worthless. Uh, this one is outstanding. And the title, the title captures the whole thing, and the title captures uh, the essence of what we're going to study tonight in Philippians. And the title of the book is simply this, You Are the Message. Uh, it is... Uh, Uh, That's brief, it's concise, it's to the point. Uh, We we have different um, communications that we want to get across. Uh, One of the things he talks about, that whatever it is, if you're called to get up and make a presentation, uh, uh, make it with everything you have. Make it with your whole heart. Throw yourself into it. Uh, You are your message. But it goes beyond that because, you see, it's not only what you say, but more importantly, It's who you are. Uh, There are a number of things that we could say mark our culture. But one of the most significant ones and one of the most prominent things I think that marks our culture is the fact that we value image over substance. We value image over character. We value the appearance of character over character itself. But see, you you are the message. Let's turn to Philippians 3 and see if you don't pick that up. And what Paul has to say as he continues in his letter to the church at Philippi, specifically in Philippians 3, we'll begin with verse 15. We'll read down to uh, verse 21. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, or more accurately, mature, let us, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I am often told, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, whose end is destruction whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that has even to subject all things uh, to himself. Of of all the races that... uh, were being watched last night, probably the one I watched with most interest was uh, the Senate race in Arkansas. And the reason I watched that particular one was because uh, there's a a guy by the name of Tim Hutchinson who has been um, the senator in Arkansas. Now, you may be familiar with his brother Asa, who's head of the Drug Enforcement Agency. Asa's a good man. Um, I, I was interested to see what would happen to Tim Hutchinson. And the reason I was so interested, and he lost, by the way. And I'd been praying that he'd lose. Now, Tim Hutchinson originally was a Baptist minister in Arkansas. Um, Ran for the Senate. He was the guy that stood for family values. He was the guy that stood for biblical principles. He was the guy that uh, talked about faith and family. And he had a pretty good track record. Everyone knew where he stood in terms of uh, his personal integrity and all this sort of thing. Well, he gets up there. He gets elected. He's not up there very long, and he divorces his wife and marries, I think, this gal who was on his staff. That's why I was interested to see if, if he would win. Now, you see, uh, there, there was a little bit of a problem there. And the problem is this, and I caught him a a few years ago on CNN or one of the networks when Clinton was in trouble. When was Clinton not in trouble? (laughs) But it was one of those sexual, it might have been in the middle of the Lewinsky thing. And he was just going to town on on Clinton. And I thought, you know, this guy's got nothing to say. Because you see, you are, you are the message. Your life is your message. Uh, The easiest thing in the world is to teach. Anybody can do that. The most difficult thing is to teach by your life. Because, see, when you have a man's uh, teaching and his life add up, you have something then called, uh, uh, you can call it congruency. That means the parts synchronize and they add up. Another word for that would be integrity. Uh, you are the message. Uh, it's important that the message that comes out of your mouth is congruent with the message that comes out of your life. So if you're going to talk about the the family values thing, then it might be a good idea if you actually lived out family values. It might be a good idea if, uh, if you were committed to your wife. It might be a good idea that... Uh, that in public as well as in secret, uh, you lived out your message. These video cameras are everywhere. Have you noticed that? They're everywhere. We all saw the deal with the gal in the parking lot with her daughter, pulling her hair and being pretty harsh with her. Um, Before she did that, what did she do? She looked around. So you never know, you remember, how many of you guys remember Alan Funt? Yeah. <laughs> candid,
1: camera.
0: candid camera. You're on candid camera. There's nothing more candid than a camera when you don't know you're on. But you see, quite frankly, that shouldn't really make a difference, should it? Because you see, you are the message. The, the, the real message that you really believe is, is, is what comes out of your life, is what comes out of your behavior. Paul, in this passage, you can really break this passage down very simply, uh, to the example and then secondly to the enemy. The example is Paul himself. In verse uh, 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have seen in us. I remember when I was a kid. My mom, she would sew a lot, and she had this Singer sewing machine, and she'd bring home these patterns, and she'd get them out on the table. You Guys, your wives do that. Your moms, you remember that? They get these patterns out, and then they lay out that material, and they're cutting, they're cutting that fabric according to the pattern. Paul is talking about an example, and he holds himself up as an example. Uh, he talks about the pattern. He says. Observe those who walk according to the pattern. I think he's talking here, perhaps about Epaphroditus, who he's mentioned earlier. I think he's talking about Timothy, uh, who he mentioned as examples of being servant leaders. These are guys that 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 could be emulated. When Paul says, "Join in following my example," and Epaphroditus and Timothy, and the pattern that's in their life, their lives, he's not saying here. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about maturity perfection won't occur uh, as long as we're on this earth. But I think what Paul is talking about is, he, he's talking about uh, the, the message of his life. He's talking about the congruency of his life. Uh, he's talking about, he's not saying that he's sinless, because he's not. In fact, earlier, he says, not that I have already attained it. I mean, he admitted that he hadn't. But he's talking about a consistency. He's talking about a general overall pattern of life that incorporates the message of Christ into one's life. C.H. Spurgeon was really unique. he uh, I have a hard time ever speaking without quoting from him. Um, we're, Mary and I are finishing this book we're working on right now. And I was, I was checking today, every cha- in every chapter I have a quote from Spurgeon. The guy was remarkable. He uh, he started a college. You know, when he was twenty one, he was the most famous preacher on the face of the earth. This was back in the eighteen what fifties, sixties, something like that. Pastor a church in London. He he uh, there was this old run down big church in a in a in a run down part of London, and they invited him to come and do pulpit supply because the uh, whoever the guy was was gone, and. Uh, Man, did he ever did, he, did he ever shake and bake. They couldn't believe it because uh, there weren't a whole lot of people there Sunday morning, but the word got out, and Sunday night there were a heck of a lot more people. And then they invited this kid. I mean, he's 19 years old. He's just some country bumpkin. And uh, anyway, before you know it, he's pastoring that church, and this thing is going crazy. Uh, the church grew, and amazing, amazing stuff. Um, I think a case could be made that Spurgeon, the greatest preacher in the history of history of, uh, of the church since the apostles, uh, he started a college uh, for young men who wanted to become ministers, and interestingly enough, uh, most of them were his age. But uh, he had quite a heritage. He, uh, his, his uh, father was a godly man. His grandfather was a godly pastor. He spent a lot of time in his grandfather's uh, at his grandfather's home. And uh, a lot of time. And his grandfather had this remarkable library. Uh, and, and Spurgeon, as a little boy, would just spend hours and hours and hours in that library reading. Um, reading the great books of the Christian faith. Uh, he knew the scriptures. He had a great mind. It was said that if you would cut Spurgeon, he would bleed Bible. That guy was amazing. Um, he, uh, he, he has this book called Lectures to My Students. This this is my second copy. The first one I wore out and fell apart because I try to read through it at least once a year. Now, some of this stuff doesn't have a lot of... He has a chapter in here on open-air preaching, how to do that outside. Well, most of us don't do a lot of that. But his very first chapter is called The Minister's Self-Watch. And it's written for guys who are going to the ministry. I want to read you a section of it. Because you know, in a real sense, we're all in ministry. You know that. Um, and, and he has some, some, you know what he's saying in here? He's saying, you are the message. Uh, Paul is saying, when he says, join in following my example, Paul is saying, I am the message, you're the message. Listen to this. He says, every workman knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. For if the iron be blunt and he does not wet the edge, then he must put to more strength. Uh, If the workman loses the edge from his ads, he knows that there will be a greater drought upon his energies or his work will be badly done. Michelangelo, the elect of the fine arts, understood so well the importance of his tools that he always made his own brushes with his own hands. And in this he gives us an illustration of the God of grace. Who, with special care, fashions for himself all true ministers. He doesn't say all ministers, he says all true ministers. Because you know there are false teachers, don't you? He goes on and he says, Remember, he's talking to these young guys who are going to go in the ministry. He says, We are, in a sense, our own tools, and therefore must be kept, uh, we must keep ourselves in order. Uh, if I want to preach the gospel, I can only use my own voice, therefore, I must train my own vocal powers. I can only think with my own brain uh, and feel with my own heart, and therefore I must educate my intellectual and emotional faculties. He says, um, I can only weep and agonize for souls in my own renewed nature, therefore I must watchfully maintain the tenderness that was in Christ. It will be in vain for me, here we go now, it will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. Uh, for books and agencies and systems are only the instruments remotely of my holy calling, while my own spirit and soul and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties and my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. Let me say that again. That, that's, got some, that's got some bark on it, doesn't it? Did you catch that? He says, my spiritual faculties and my inner life are my battle-axe and weapons of war." Hmm. He quotes Robert Murray McChain, great old man of God. He says, McChain, writing to a ministerial friend who was traveling in Europe with a view to to perfecting himself in the German tongue, McChain wrote to him and said, I know you will apply to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust the chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as he blesses likeness to Jesus. A holy minister... Is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A hmm. holy minister. He's talking about someone whose inner life is congruent. He's talking about someone who is not any different in private than they are in public. He goes on. He says this. We have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly. That when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought never to come out again. And when he was out of it, they all declared he never ought to enter it again. Have <laughs> you ever known of someone who preached well and lived badly? There's a real problem there. There's, there's a lot of confusion there. Because, you see, you are the message. One more shot from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He uh, quotes... Um, Quotes an old church father by the name of St. Austin, who says, with their doctrine they build, and with their lives, they destroy. Huh. Isn't that something? Well, we're, we're, to a degree, we're ministers. Your husband, you're a father, uh, uh, you're a minister. Uh, you, you are called to shepherd the flock of your family. Uh, if, if you really want to screw up kids, do this. Uh, be a church-going man um, who's really difficult to live with. Be a, be a father who, uh, who's strong on the Word of God, but, uh, but harsh and hard and, uh, um, and not open. More people have been driven from Christianity um, by poor role models, I think, than just about by anything else. Um, You are the message. I'm the message, you're the message. Paul talks about the importance of the example, Um, because whether we are aware of it or not, we. We are modeling and, and we are preaching by our lives. Uh, wh- what does he mean when he says, follow my example? You know, I think, I think there's something here we have to understand. Paul is obviously not saying, don't try to be like me. Uh, I, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in our, in our youth, we see certain people and we try to emulate them. Uh, you don't need to do that. You need to be yourself. God has created you to be you. You know that? I remember hearing Chuck, years ago, talk about when he graduated from Dallas Seminary. And he went up to pastor a church in Massachusetts, in New England. And I think his line was, people in New England are not impressed with people from Texas. (laughs) And he was a young guy, and he was just out of the box. But I remember hearing this on a tape when I was in seminary. Uh, He'd go to church in Cynthia. And uh, they'd come home and gently, uh, at some point during the week, Cynthia would encourage him. She'd say, Chuck, you know, you just need to be you. Because by his own admission, one Sunday he'd get up and he'd uh, preach and he'd be Howard Hendricks. Because, gosh, if you've ever heard Howard Hendricks, who wouldn't want to be Howard Hendricks? You see, the problem was Chuck wasn't Howard Hendricks. And he wasn't designed to be Howard Hendricks. Uh, But if you can be like Howard Hendricks, that's pretty safe is there's no better communicator than Howard Hendricks. So one Sunday he'd get up and he'd be Howard Hendricks. And then the next Sunday he'd get up and he'd be Dwight Pentecost. Because, gosh, if you can deliver the goods like Dwight Pentecost, you can deliver. And then the next Sunday he might get up and be Ray Steadman. And then the next Sunday, and Cynthia, as the weeks and months would go by, she would encourage him and say, Chuck, you just need to be you." Aren't you glad that uh, eventually he got that message? (laughs) And you know what's funny? You got all these young guys at Dallas Seminary, and they go out and preach, and who are they preaching like? They're trying to be like Chuck, you see? Because he's Chuck. He's one of a kind. You're one of a kind. A lot of times we look at somebody else and say, I wish I could be like them. No, you don't want to do that. You want to be you. God liked you. God made you. Gave you your personality, gave you your strengths. gave you your weaknesses. Um, he, He put you together. So be you. I'm cutting somebody some slack here on that phone. Is that you? Okay. I just thought I'd point you out. (laughs) You you just looked really uncomfortable. Isn't that terrible? I hate that when that happens. Did I tell you guys I did that at Phantom of the Opera? (laughs) In Fair Park. We went for our anniversary, and it's just getting started, and everything's quiet, and everybody's, you know. And and then mine went off. So I'm with you, man. They threw me out and uh, it was tough. We're not going to do that to you. No, you're fine. You're fine. God put you together. God wired you. God made you. Uh, We need to learn to get comfortable with ourselves and to allow. Here's what I, I think Paul does mean is that when Paul says that he is an example, he's talking about his inner man, the truth of Christianity. He is attempting to apply. And work out in his own life and then express through his own personality. You remember back in Philippians 2? Flip back over there to verse 12. See, this, this is what Christianity is all about. He says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work within you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. See, this is the whole thing of Christianity. Uh, the, the, the whole issue of Christianity is that you take the truth that you are hearing. You take the truth that you're being taught, and then what you attempt to do is you attempt to integrate that truth that is within you, and you attempt to, to live it out. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says, it says work out your salvation. Worked it out. And and see, we've all got issues. We're trying to sort out because we have issues. The Bible's got a lot of stuff to say. There's a lot of principles in there. And and and, and we're dealing with different issues in our lives and we've got different circumstances. And what we're trying to do is, right, I'm trying to take that principle and that principle. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to work it out. Have you got it all wired? Have you got it all figured out yet? No. No. And you never will. So what do you do? You keep working it out. You keep, you, you keep doing that, uh, that exercise. Do you always get it right? No, you don't always get it right. But you're working on it. You're dead the day you quit working on it. That's when you're in trouble. Uh, if you don't believe that, go back to verse or chapter 3 and note verse 15 and 17. <clears throat> this is where we started, 15 and 16 rather. He says, "Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained." See, the attitude that he was talking about was pressing onward, pressing upward. I think a lot of times we uh, we get hung up because I think a lot of us are goal oriented. A lot of us want to see growth, and we want to be uh, achieving in the Christian life, but we get discouraged sometimes because we think we ought to be further down the road than we actually are. And and we're aware of that, and we're cognizant of it, and we're a little disappointed about it. Uh, As long as you are continuing to press upward, as long as you are shooting for the goal, that's in verse 14. See that? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Um, if you're mature, he goes on and says, that's the goal. You're running a race. Uh, You're not on the sidelines. You're pursuing Christ. And then he says in 15, if if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Did I talk in here in the last two weeks about Martin Luther and about how he couldn't find forgiveness for sin? Okay. Okay boy, that was you guys said that with resounding authority. <laughs> I'm going to assume I didn't. Um, Martin Luther well, wanted to know the Lord. He wanted uh, to know that he was forgiven. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, Martin Luther was acutely aware of his shortcomings. He was acutely aware of his sin. And what Martin Luther would do is that he would go through all kinds of of works, quite frankly, to try and show God that he was serious. Uh, Martin Luther would fast. He would pray. He would take two to three days at a time. And what he would do is he would write down every sin that he could possibly remember committing. Uh, He'd write it down. He'd confess it before God. And he would go on these two, three-day marathons of, of trying to get clean before God. He would fall asleep, exhausted, wake up, and, he'd, and, and he would immediately know that he had forgotten something. He could never get peace. Um, he was always concerned that there was sin in his life that he was not aware of. Now, I want you to see something here. It says in verse 15, if in anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. See, we don't have to run around, um, we don't have to run around concerned that there's things in our lives that we're missing. The Spirit of God has the ability to show us areas of our lives that He is concerned about. Martin Luther was, was, was so um, obsessive about finding all the things he had done wrong. That he had no peace. And then, one day, he discovered in the book of Romans that the just shall live by faith. Later, he discovered 1 John 1, 9. uh, Which says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that set Martin Luther free. Because he was spending days and days and days trying to remember every sin he'd ever committed. What 1 John 1, 9 basically says is that if you confess your sin, if there's a sin that the Spirit of God makes clear to you, I had a guy asked me this week um, out in California. He was concerned that, that he wasn't dealing with, with, with sin in his life. He was feeling guilty. And I said, now tell me what you're feeling guilty about. He said, I just, nothing in particular. I said, well, then you know that's not from the Lord. Because you see, God will be specific. If anything is wrong, he'll reveal it to you. And so what happens is when he reveals it to you, that one sin, here's what Martin Luther discovered. On John 1.9, 1 John 1.9, you confess your known sin, God is so great, God is so wonderful, He'll cleanse you from most of your sin. That's not right. He'll cleanse you from, if you confess your known sin, He cleanses you from how much sin? All sin. When Martin Luther discovered that, he, he, he didn't have to do those two or three day deals anymore. Because he realized the magnitude of forgiveness in Christ. Sets you free, enables you to live life. Now let's go back to Paul's example here. What, what did Paul mean when he says, I, I want you to um, follow my example? I want you to emulate. He's saying, I want you to, I, I want you to integrate in your personal life the doctrines and the principles that you see me follow. He's talking about public life and private life. I think he's talking about things like by uh, he's talking about things like uh, living by faith. That's a big one in the Christian life. There will always be areas of our life that we can't get our arms around. There's always going to be an area or two in your life that you can't uh, that you can't fix. There, there's always going to be an area in your life that you'd kind of like to have together that's not going to be together. You know why? Because. That's the area where God is calling you to live by faith. Uh, It could be your retirement. Um, And I've talked to a bunch of guys over the last several months who've been completely cleaned out, had these incredible uh, retirement plans. I mean, they were juicing them. I mean, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars in these things. And and what they've got now is, is zippo. So so and, and you see they were sitting pretty a couple years ago. And now they're not. And and you see they don't have enough time. We're probably not going to have another run like that for quite a while. You see. And so they're thinking, how am I ever going to get that back? They're probably not going to get it back. So in that area of their lives, they're going to have to live by what? Faith. I'll live by faith every day of his life. Without God, Hebrews says, it's, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So there's always going to be an area in your life, it could be a hundred different areas, uh, you know, not all hundred at the same time, but you know what I'm saying. God can choose a number of different things in your life by which you have to be totally dependent on Him for this thing to work out. If He doesn't come through for you, you're done. If He doesn't come through, you're finished. Paul had that happen to him all the time. That's normal for the Christian life. There will be an area where you need God completely and totally. God's into this thing. Have you noticed this? God's into this thing called 100% dependence. He's big on that. He really likes that. Now, most of us, we're not real big on it. We don't mind 60% dependence, even 70 sometimes 80 but 100% dependence? See, that means you're living totally and completely on the resources of him. Uh, a, a, another one, uh, just to sum up what we've already looked at in Philippians, would be, uh, uh, would be a thankful spirit and a thankful heart. Uh, one of the themes of Philippians is, is rejoicing. One of the themes of, uh, themes of Philippians is being thankful. One of the themes of Philippians is having joy. When you think about Israel in the Old Testament, one of the things that they were noted for, one of the characteristics of Israel in the Old Testament as they were wandering in the wilderness is that they were always complaining. Were they a joyful people? Were they a thankful people? Let me ask you something. What were some of the things that God did for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when they were wandering. Give me a few. He fed them. How did he feed them? With the manna. That's an amazing thing. Because he, every day, he'd give him manna. He'd give it to him in the morning, and he said, you don't take more than you need. If you take more than you need, it'll spoil. Uh, so don't take more than you need. Yeah, but how do I know there's going to be what I need that night? Well, they were totally dependent on God to give them what they needed at night. And and he'd give it to them. Once again, you're not to take more because if you think, that you say, well, why? what about? What am I going to do in the morning? Well, it's not morning yet, is it? Jesus said, take no thought for what? For tomorrow, each day has enough trouble of his own. Was, was he saying that, that we don't use legitimate planning in the context there? He wasn't saying that. Uh, when, you, when you look at it contextually. What Jesus was talking about was nagging worry that God wouldn't come through. So, in the morning, they'd get manna. And then, but see, the day before the Sabbath, they were to take enough for two days because they weren't to collect on the Sabbath. So, they t- you can never take more than one meal. But on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath, you take enough to get you through for two days. That wouldn't spoil. Why not? Because it was supernatural. You see? So, God took care of them. And what did they do? They complained. They complained. What else did God do for them? Somebody else, what else did God do? What? He guided them, and that ties into what you were saying. He guided them how? By a cloud by what? Day, fire by night. So there was this cloud by day. Why the heck was there a cloud by day? Well, if you've ever been out there in that Judean desert in July, you're looking for a cloud by day. Because uh, it'll be 110, 112, easy, on a nice day. So God had this cloud to shield them from the sun. But at night, it would turn into a pillar by fire. Uh, when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stayed still, they stayed still. That's not a bad way to live your life. You say, Lord, I need your direction here. When that cloud moves, you move. When it stands still, you wait on God. And how often does the scripture talk about waiting? But the whole time, once again, see, they've got the leadership of God on a moment-by-moment basis. Do you ever get up in the morning and say, "Lord, lead me?" Sure you do. Now you look at, and then you look at the cloud. You don't have a cloud. What do you, what do you got? What, what, what have you got in your life? You've got the Word of God. And, and you've got the Holy Spirit who teaches us through the word, and you've got, hopefully, a friend or two that knows the Lord. And as mature in Christ, in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. So, see, you're trying to get a decision. Do I go on this deal? Do I take that job? Do I do this? Do I take early retirement? They're offering, you know, I mean, what, what, what do you do? How do you? Well, there's no cloud to look at. You look at the Word of God. You have an open heart. You get counsel from some other men that know the Lord. You work it out. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's worked within you. You're taking the principles and working them out. Yeah, but what if I make the wrong decision? Well, if you've got an open heart, you can't make the wrong decision. Not really. Now, that may throw some of you guys. Because some of you, you made a decision, and you went ahead and crossed into the next chapter of life, and it really looked good. And then you got there, and it all fell apart. And then the tendency is to say, well, what happened? Well, what do you mean what happened? Well, it's not working out. So, well, I I asked God to lead me. God did lead you. That's why you're there. You think you would have gone into that thing if you thought it wouldn't work out? (laughs) Not in your right mind, you wouldn't have. See, a lot of times, isn't that true? I'm telling you, I can look back on my life, and I can look back in situations in my life. I think a one, two, I think a two, one, actually three chapters in particular, that if I had known what was waiting for me when I got there, I never would have gotten there. Did I pray? Yeah. Did I ask for godly counsel? Yeah. Did I try to use scriptural principles? Yeah. That's how I got there. And you know what? It didn't work. It it caved. It, it, It was a disappointment. It was not what I had hoped it would be. It was a tough season of life. But then, you know what happened? Then God moved me to the next chapter. And when I got into the next chapter, then I could look back on that difficult chapter and understand that God took me through that difficult chapter to prepare me for what he had for me in the next chapter. You ever have that happen to you? Happens all the time. Uh, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Emulate emulate my example. Uh, that's his example. Now remember. You also got something else here. You got the guys of whom you're okay. You need somebody. John, we had John Floyd in here. I don't see John Floyd. Okay, thanks. I think he's really in trouble now. Okay, now you, we've got the enemies, and this is really interesting. Look at um, look at verse 18. He says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Um, Earlier, Paul has talked about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the guys who added to the gospel. They taught the gospel Message, but they added to it that you have to be circumcised to be saved They're adding a work to something that is of grace These guys are not the Judaizers. These guys are the opposite of the Judaizers Uh, These guys are the uh, uh, Here's a term for you the antinomians Uh, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-S Anti-nomos is anti-law. These are the guys who basically teach. You you see, the Judaizers are legalists. These guys believe in license. Uh, These guys would teach. You know how Romans says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? These guys would say, you bet. But what did Paul say? May May it never be. These guys were guys who trampled on the grace of God. These guys, uh, these guys were in the license. These guys were uh, using the gospel as a guise and as a cover for immoral living. That's what he's talking about. They're enemies of the cross. Why are they enemies of the cross? Because you see, you are the message. So if you're going to live like that, claiming to be a believer, claiming to be a recipient of the grace of God, and you're going to live like this, you've got a problem. You asked me about a verse when I came in. What verse was that? Let's turn over to James. And this was a great question, and it's a very rational and logical question. Out of James. All right, James 2. Verse 24. Actually, we ought to to go up a little bit to James 21, uh, 221. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? When he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. You see that faith was working within his works, uh, with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Then he goes to verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that is a radical statement. What is that about? Is this, is James here? Is, uh, is James preaching a different gospel? You know, actually, James fits in perfectly with the rest of Scripture. There's no problem here. Uh, James is basically saying what Paul is going to say here in Philippians chapter 3. James is saying... That a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do you mean? Here's what he means. If someone says they're a Christian, if someone says they're a recipient of the grace of God, and they've received Christ by faith, well, the way you receive... Let me ask you something. Is faith something you do, or is faith a gift of God? It's a gift of God. It's something he gives you. You're regenerated by the... And there to be no evidence of change in his behavior in any way, shape, or form. In other words, some guy who lives like hell comes to Christ and continues to live like hell with no perceivable difference in any way, shape, or form. There's something wrong. I've had people tell me, oh, no, you, you don't understand the grace of God. See, Christ can come into your life in his grace. If you say that there has to be fruit, that's a work. Fruit is not a work. Fruit is something that the Spirit of God produces. When the Spirit of God is in your life, there's going to be fruit. You ought to be a different guy after you come to Christ than before. If not, you ought to check out if you really came to know Christ. When he says we're justified by our works, the works, hey, if, an, if some guy tells you that's an apple tree in the middle of January, and there are no apples on it and there are no leaves on it. You'd be nuts to believe that was an apple tree. So give it a year. Just give it a year. If you don't see evidence in a year that's an apple tree, it's probably not an apple tree. Am I making sense to you guys? There's going to be some fruit. These guys are uh, licentiousness. uh, They're trampling on the grace of God and using the message of the gospel is an excuse for sin. He characterizes them, uh, he characterizes them in four ways. And, and you know what's interesting? Both of these camps, the Judaizers are at one extreme, the, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of another term for them. Yeah, libertines, yeah, the libertines, the, the, the fools. The, the license guys. You got the legalist and the license. They're both extremes. Remember Paul said, follow my example. You know what Paul's got? Paul's got balance. He's right smack in between these two guys. He doesn't go to legalism and he doesn't go to license. Um, and you see that in his life. Um, you know balance is a huge issue in the Christian life. And you guys remember the Flying, no that's not it. They weren't called the Flying Walindas. You guys remember the Walinda family? Were they called the Flying Walindas? I think if I was a tightrope walker, I wouldn't want to be called the Flying Walinda. That's what made me hesitate. They were an amazing family and they would do an amazing stunt as a family because, and, and, the, and the patriarch of the family was Carl Walinda. What they would do as a family is, there wouldn't be one or two guys on the tightrope, they'd have the whole family. And they'd be on this tightrope, and they'd have two or three guys. And then, you know, you know how they walk with those poles? But then they'd put, these, um, they'd put these, uh, these platforms on their shoulders and rest them. So you'd have a guy here on the tightrope, and then maybe another guy 15 feet, another guy 15 feet. And they, were, they had these harnesses. And then what would happen, other members of the family would get up on top. So these guys are on the, on the wire at the harness, and, you know, it's, it's this thin deal. Then they'd get on that. And then they'd get up on top. Then they'd go third level. They did that for years and years and years. How do you do that? It's called balance. You don't have balance, and you're in trouble. And the night they lost the balance, a couple of them were killed. One or two of them was paralyzed. Balance is critical. These guys are out of balance. Note, note the description that's given of these guys in, uh, in Philippians. Four, four descriptions. He says their destiny is destruction. Um, <clears throat> another word for destruction here is waste. Waste. There's a valley outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It was the garbage dump. It's another word for hell. Hell is full of wasted lives. Absolutely wasted. Um, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. Everybody's going somewhere. Everybody's heading down uh, a trail. But narrow is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. Uh, it, it's, It's tragic how many lives are wasted lives. Uh, these guys, their lives are going to be wasted. Here's the second trait. It says, "Whose God is their appetite?" Uh, what, what he means here is these guys are controlled by their sensual appetites. They are dominated by sensuality. Um, they're looking for pleasure. they're looking anything. they're looking for any kind of pleasure that comes through the five senses. It, it's their God, it's their idol, it's what they pursue. Here's the third thing. They glory in their shame. I was going in the Kroger the other day. And and Mary gave me a list. I hate those lists. (laughs) But I had a list. So I had gone in, and I thought, I better get a cart. Because the list was a little longer than I thought. So I go back out to get a cart. As I'm getting this cart, and I pull out of the rack, and I turn around, I almost hit these two women walking in with the cart, I mean, I mean, I didn't hit them, but I, you know, we almost had a little collision. And then I looked at them, and I noticed they were holding hands. And then I looked at them again, because I didn't know if they were friends or whatever. But they were more than friends. And you know what? They were real proud of it. I started watching them. And just the way there was a, there was a look in their eye, there was a uh, defiance. There was was something about them. They knew exactly what they were doing. Now, you know what was really sad? You had a lot of young mothers in that store with little kids. And here come these two gals, defiant. And I'll tell you something. There was no shame. None whatsoever. I came this close to saying to them, I mean, I came this close. I almost said, shame on you. But I didn't. I mean, I thought about it down three aisles.
1: <laughs>
0: I almost went back. And I was You know what I was doing? I was working out my salvation with Fear and trembling. Why I didn't. I mean, I really was. I was sorting through every biblical principle I could think of. And and I came out on the side to not say anything to him. But I'm still not sure that was the right thing. Anyway. Why? Because there was no shame. They were proud of what they were doing. Isn't that our culture? You see? Isn't that Romans 1? That, that, that people glory in things they ought to be ashamed of. And not only that, but they encourage others to do the same? Uh, uh, the fourth trait is they have their mind on earthly things. They they love the world. I'll tell you something interesting. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking up something on the internet and I was doing a search, and uh, and a particular guy's name came up, who uh, it was. It, I was working on something for Bible study. Guy's name came up, and. Uh, and I know this guy, and he's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. He was a whole lot of years ahead of me. But, uh, and there was this, uh, you know, I was on Google, and I hit it. And it went to this guy, and it showed him interviewing another guy who was also a graduate of Dallas Seminary, another guy who was also ahead of me. And it was interesting because it had a picture of these two guys, and uh, one was interviewing the other, and they were talking about a particular branch of theology. And you know, it really struck me as interesting. Because both of those guys, both of those guys, um, I think it's safe to say that for uh, 25 years, both of them have been men of license. There's a trip, I saw both of them together and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Because the one guy on the left, who's a graduate of Dallas Seminary, he's on his fourth wife. Number four, when I first met him, he was on number two. Nice wife, four kids. But he had this college ministry, and a gal that dated my brother, Jeff, some of you guys know Jeff, a gal that dated Jeff, he wound up getting involved with this gal, and he was like 50-something, and she was, what, 24? So he dumped his second wife and four kids for this young gal. We were all shocked. We were all stunned. And it came to my attention about, I don't know, a month ago, that this young gal who we married 25 years ago, see, she's now in her, she's now 50. So what did he do about a year ago? Tell me what he did. He dumped her. her. Yeah. He's on number four. And the guy he's interviewing, he's a womanizer too. He's got a trail. I I, I remember remember having lunch with this guy and spending four hours with this guy. And he was the hottest thing in a particular region of the country because he has this church that was blowing and going. And uh, I'll I'll never forget, he told me about this book. He said, it's the most influential book I've ever read in my life. And And I said, well, tell me the name of it. I wrote it down. And the book was called Looking Out for Number One. And this guy was dead serious. I went and got the book and I thought, well, it's gotta be different from the title. And it wasn't. And I read the book. And after spending four hours with this guy, and here's what he talked about. He talked about how big his church was. He talked about money. And he talked about, uh, basically, how he could get ahead. That's all the guy talked about. Then I went and got the book, and I went home after I read the book, and I told Mary. I said, you know, Mary, this guy is going down. This guy's not going to make it, and it's not that I'm a prophet. It's just anybody could have seen that, and and he did. And once again, there's a trail. Oh, and by the way, that church that he had, he was involved with a gal, and then his associate pastor was involved with a gal, and then the college guy was involved with a gal, and then another guy was involved with. A- why? Because it's a sham. Because why? Oh, uh, not the same gal. <laughs>
1: No, no,
0: no, that's what the Kennedys did.
1: <laughs>
0: read Joe Kennedy's biography. I'm not kidding you. Go read it. That's what they did. You guys see, you see what I'm talking about here? There was licentiousness. Um, their mind, see, and it all had to do with the mind. The mind was on earthly things. The mind was on the world. Uh, let's wrap this up. Go back to Philippians, and notice what Paul talks about here. Do you remember... Do you remember that he's writing to the people in Philippi? And the unique thing about Philippi was that Philippi was a particular kind of town. It was a colony. It was a colony of Rome that was set up to be an outpost of Rome. They had Roman food. They had the Roman language. They'd put these colonies all over the Roman Empire, and they had their road system so that no, no matter where you went from Rome, you could always get to a Roman colony. And they didn't care about the other cultures. There was Roman food. There was Roman clothes. There was Roman dress. There were Roman books. They were citizens of Rome. That was a big thing in Philippi. These people he's writing to in Philippi were citizens of Rome. Look what he says in verse 20. And look at the last line in 19. Who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also... Uh, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subjecting things to himself. He's talking about what's going to happen when, when uh, we leave this earth and when we're transformed and when we're in a perfected state. But in the meantime, see, in the meantime, we're to be, we're to be people who don't have our mindset set on earthly things, we're to have our minds set on the things of heaven and the things of the Lord. Flip over to the next book, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to the right, to Colossians. Look at chapter 3. Know what he says here? If you then have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Because that's where we're going. See, their end is destruction. Our end is eternal life. We're going somewhere. So as we're going somewhere, keep seeking. You don't seek it once. You continue. You keep seeking. Keeping your mind on the things of God. And when we do that, guys... When we continue to seek the things of God, we continue to seek the Word of God, we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling on different issues. Do I say something to those two women or do I not? Well, what are you dealing with today? Well, you know, you're you're seeking the Lord. You know what that does? As you're working that out, have you got it all together? No, but you know what that does? You are the message. You're the message. And there has to be congruency between what we say with our lives and what we say with our lips. It's got to match. That only makes sense. Does that make sense to you guys? So that's the drill. So what's our deal this week? Then what's our our homework for this week? I had to give homework in this class. Do they do homework? I'm not into homework. I hate homework. But I will give you some homework. You know what the homework is? This week, tomorrow, all right, tomorrow. In your mind, tomorrow, the thought is I want my behavior. I want my behavior to match my beliefs. I want my inner life. I want my mind. And see, when we start to put it on the things that are below, don't you do that. Don't you do it. Put it on the Word of God. Put it on Christ. You having a tough time? Call a buddy up and say, you know, I'm struggling with this. Maybe you've heard me say this. There are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. I've used that line for years. I'll tell you something funny. I was in California this weekend. I was in Santa Cruz, California this weekend. Santa Cruz is sort of Berkeley Junior. It's right on the coast in Northern California. University of California, Santa Cruz. I mean, mean, it's as radical as Berkeley. In fact, I'm speaking out there, but I'm finishing this book. So I'm down at Kinko's. I had about two hours. and I'm down there working on something, printing it out. And And as I'm there at Kinko's and I'm working on this, all of a sudden I hear this, boom, boom, boom. Everybody starts looking up, and these drums, and you look, and you look, and all of a sudden here they come down the street. There was an anti-war, anti-Iraq peace march. I mean, it looked like a time warp out of 1968. There were about 200 of them, and this gal in front, and they had the drum, boom, boom. And here was this gal out in front leading them. She had a lot of miles on her tires, let me tell you. She is probably late fifties, but she thought it was Golden Gate Park, 1968. I mean, she was in her element. And right next to her was this guy who had a hard life. I mean, I, I don't think this guy was probably over fifty, but he looked he looked eighty three. There's a lot of drugs. The gray long. I mean, this guy was Joe Hip, and then they were just they were just coming down. Amazing, just just amazing. Um, Remarkable. You, 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 know, you, you know what's so interesting? Is, is the fact that you see in, in that, you, I gotta tell you something, I just got lost. I had a great point to make and I lost it. Because I told you about that peace march.
1: You can't get married to yourself.
0: You can't get married by yourself. So I'm driving the Kinkos, I turn the corner, I go by this Unitarian church in Santa Cruz, and they got a, a, a thing in front with the Sunday sermon And the Sunday sermon is marrying yourself. (laughs) Uh, There it is. Two things you can't do by yourself. No matter what the Unitarians say. Whatever the Unitarians say is wrong. (laughs) And a guy asked me, what do Unitarians believe? Nothing. (laughs) It's in the Bible. They don't believe. Two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself and you can't live the Christian life by yourself. So tomorrow, you really struggle with something? Having a hard time? Tell somebody. Talk to somebody who you can trust, and tell them. Because the two are stronger than one. We're in this thing together, guys. That's God's way, and that's God's plan. Paul wasn't by himself. He had Timothy. He had Epaphroditus. Who have you got? Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you you that you sent Jesus and that Jesus was the message. We are so grateful that he was the living word of God. We are thankful that he has uh, regenerated us by his spirit and has given us eternal life. Father, we desire desire that our lives, too, would be the message. Uh, We're not perfect. We fall short. But, Lord, we want to keep seeking. We want to keep pursuing. We want to keep working out our salvation because you're at work within us. Give us that desire, Lord, for congruency. Give us that desire for integrity. And for the areas and for the times we fall short, may we be quick to confess it before you and receive that cleansing and that forgiveness. Lord, encourage us to keep on. Encourage us to stay with it. Encourage us, Lord, for our for our private life to match our public life. Uh, may the message, Lord, of our life match the message of what we believe. That's our desire. Encourage us, Lord, tomorrow. Uh, some guys in here are downcast. They're still out of work. Let them know that you're with them. Others of us, Lord, are dealing with different issues. We ask that we would see your faithfulness tomorrow as we have seen it today. Help us to live on the promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. It's good to be here and not be in Santa Cruz. (laughs) See ya.